Okay, well, uh, let's uh, get started. I put on your tables just a little class outline. I'm going to hand out some more paper later. So hopefully I can match Pastor Bruzek in the amount of paper that you give out. All right, well, let's, uh, let's begin. Now, um, on your, we are going to talk about women. I know, and, you know, we did this a few years ago, we're going to do it again, but this time we're going to take a look at women of the Reformation, and I'm excited for it, because, um, you know, being Lutheran, we hear a lot about men, and we might hear about, oh, so I'm just going to say this off to the beginning, we hear maybe about Martin Luther's wife, we're not going to talk about Martin Luther's wife in this class, mainly because... There are umpteen books you can read on your own. I'm going to introduce to you some women from the Reformation that were uh, influential, but yet I I highly doubt if you know any of them. So if you do, though, awesome, fantastic. Well, anyways, well, in reading um, about women of the Reformation, I, you know... uh, They've, re- they've written treatises, meditations, which we're going to take a look at, letters, hymns or songs. Uh, in fact, you can probably go in our hymnal. I had marked my hymnal uh, to find hymns. What, probably the most well-known hymn writer is Elizabeth Kruger. I was hoping that uh, um, Krista was going to be here. She can help me with the pronunciation on some of these people's names. But... I'm going to say Kruger. Kruser, Kruger, it's C-R-U-C-I-G-E-R. Kruger, 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 I don't know. Anyways, they, uh, she's got hymns in her hymnal. And there's a couple other uh, women from this time that wrote hymns. So, I mean, they're part of our life already. And then many were uh, poets. So, um, which is kind of fun. All right. Well, so what do we get from? Thank you, Jeanette. Uh, so what do we learn? Well, there, what did I put here? Theological importance sounds very important. Well, one of the one of the interesting things is that you learn a lot about life on the effects of Reformation on quote unquote normal people, not non like nerds. Basically, I could have put that non nerds. You know, like theologians and pastors. I'm a pastor. I know that pastors are nerdy. So really hearing from uh, the women of the Reformation, you hear a lot of interesting things about how, you know, life is affected by the uh, actual gospel. So some of the things that you do find out is equality. Uh, You know, just this whole notion that, uh, you know, God's speaking to men and women. And you'll you'll see some of that in uh, the first person we uh, take a look at. Inclusivity. Now, I, I use these words differently than maybe the most, the more modern way of understanding these words. Uh, this word, especially, is you know, God saves everybody, and He not only is only speaking to everybody, and God created man and woman to be equal. Uh, or as some of the middle age middle age theologians would say, collateral. I always find that word fun. Men and women are collateral, like they're co. Lateral, lateral being next to each other. So, but it, inclusive means also that you know God saves man and woman. There's no difference uh, between those two in their justification. And then also just a spiritual theology, and that I'm hoping that we'll really kind of spend most most of our time on. And you'll kind of see it in spades here with Katharina Regina von Griffenberg. Griffenberg. Uh, she has a very, and when I say spiritual, I mean, you know, she has, um, she's not interested in kind of doctrines apart from her practical life, her daily life. So that's why I, I use that term, spiritual theology. Now, these are things that everyone was concerned about in the Reformation, but these are reoccurring themes, and in, in as you, we get to read about these women and read their writings. Okay, great. Women help 
how we understand human experience and perspectives as men and women. So I always go right to the, to the, the crux of it. Do women receive the nativity story different than men? And I would say yes. So we, we can debate on that later, but if you want, but I think they do. And Katharina will, you'll probably be uncomfortable with the way she thinks about the nativity story as a woman. Well, maybe you won't be. I don't know. <laughs> you know, as I shared earlier in chapel, I just found out from my wife that, you know, a child's urine affects the women's fluids inside the womb. I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't, I've had four children. I did not know that. Uh, but she knew that. Like that. Okay. <laughs> it could be because she's just smarter than me, too. I don't have anything to do with a woman, but I'm going to chalk it up that she's a woman and I'm, I'm a man. Okay. Uh, great. So that, that, that's also, too, very, very special for me, too, as I have really read these um, treatises and poems and meditations and songs, is that that's been really, really great for me. All right, women invite us to revisit the... So you might already know this, by the way. I, I forgot to mention that at the very beginning because you guys might be thinking about this already because you're women, but I'm not. So this might be more about... Maybe I'm rehearsing my own... <laughs> my own revelations. But that's good for you to know where I'm coming from. Okay. Women invite us to revisit the Reformation teaching of marriage. What really changed and how do we understand marriage today and what are its blessings and boundaries? Um, because you might, all might know, you know, the uh, convents were kind of emptied during the Reformation. Of course, that's where Martin Luther's wife came from. She was a former nun. Well, obviously, he was a former monk. But um, there is actually, there was a, a convent that stayed open. And they are, yeah, so anyway, so this is not necessarily the, the thing we hear about is that, you know, marriage, you know, what were the blessings and boundaries of marriage? Um, you know, related to this then, too, is the elevation of motherhood has had a positive impact on women's lives. That is, in fact, that is really something, I think Martin Luther, we'll hear about this in a few weeks, but Martin Luther in his discussion of Eve and Genesis, and then also, too, as, as he talks about um, the nativity stories, he is so, he's so fascinated by pregnancy, which I think every man should be. But, like, this whole notion of, like, motherhood is just so enrapturing for him. Like, how, this human being coming from this other human being is just so fascinating for him. So that is, um, you know, so, so he really talks about, you know, motherhood as being this really, you know, kind of ultimate thing for every woman. And we talked about this uh, a few years ago, how motherhood is, is, is not necessarily just simply birthing biological children, but it is part of the identity of a woman. Um, so whether you have children or not, this is part of your identity because you're made that way. All right. Um, great. But then, but of course, then I just, as I just mentioned, uh, there was a group of women, especially in Quendlinburg, is there's a, there was an abbey that stayed open. And we'll, we'll actually look at some of uh, some nuns' writings back and forth from like they wrote letters back and forth to nuns, like nuns wrote, who left the convent and those who stayed. And that's kind of interesting. I find that fascinating. So, but yeah, so, you know, celibacy was still part of it. Now, of course, over the course of histories, and we talked about this before, was, you know, celibacy or singlehood, singleness as a uh, way of life was, was never really kept as a, um, you know, not as celebrated as much as motherhood was for women. And that, that, that's unfortunate because, well, we'll talk about that too. All I said, these women also challenge us to reflect on Genesis 1, 28 through 30. I'm sure that everyone knows that from their heart, right? Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Maybe. Well, where did my Bible go? Um, anyone have it handy? They can read it. Oh, I'll just grab this one. No, that's my hymnal. Genesis 1, 28 through 30. You, you, all, you all know this, whether you actually know it's those verses. Because once they start reading, you'll be like, oh, yeah. Okay. It's, I, uh, it's the mandate. It's kind of a pun. That's a pun there. 
mandated man. There's no gender on the mandate, but we at St. John like to make silly jokes, nerdy jokes. All right, so uh, and God. Okay, so God is. Uh, this is on the sixth day. And God's talking both to man and woman, male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in it and its fruit. You should have them for food, yada, yada, yada. Okay. The dominion, having dominion over creation. What does that mean? Most of us think about either, you know, like uh, ecology or, you know, reducing, reusing, recycling. But this really has to do with art, culture, life in general. So women, so men and women are called to have dominion over creation. And dominion does not mean dominate or abuse, but to use creation for its intended purposes, to reflect God's glory and uh, man's unique place in it. So, um, as we realize, is that there are some not-so-great things happening in the Reformation in terms of women's roles that these women actually challenged. Like, well, like I'll give you, well, we won't look at this, but Katharina Regina von Griffenberg, one of the best compliments paid to her was she writes like a Man. Isn't that crazy? Now, the thing is, though, I don't know enough German, um, but one of the things is that this was not like a men are better. It's just that it was so ingrained in the culture that only men wrote. Women didn't write. So we have these women who are writing beautifully, and it's kind of this, whoa, what's going on? So they don't even have the language, really, to, <laughs> to talk about it. Yeah, Tina. That goes, that's another thing, yes, is that women were, again, why, why do women have to go to school? So what's interesting is these women that we'll see, uh, what is their, I mean, this is a great thing about Christianity, too, in general. So what's their primary learning book? The Bible. But from the Bible, and Katharina is really a great example of this, and this also has to do with her place in life. It, she's an aristocrat. I mean, she's, a, she's part of the nobility. She, has, she can pay a, a tutor. So she learns math and physics and poetry and you know, different languages and all this. But even that was questioned. And what's interesting is most likely this happened for her because she was in a place dominated by Roman Catholics. So she actually grew up in Austria, close to the borders of Slovakia and the Czech Republic. So have, she couldn't actually practice her faith openly. So like she, she couldn't even have, like, she couldn't bring a pastor into her church, castle church or whatever. Like she had to go to different, she had to do a pilgrimage to a Lutheran land. Anyways, I think because of that, though, she had to bring it, her family had to bring in tutors for her. Because where would you go to school back in those days? You go to the church school. There wasn't like a public school. So. Did they educate young people generally, or did they work for their parents and not for Well, again, that all depends on your station in life. But like for us here in Wheaton, Illinois, yeah, your children probably, you know, if you want to like make an analogy. Yeah, our children would be educated to a certain point. And then, so most girls who were um, you know, not peasants would be educated to a certain point, but not, not to the degree of going to university. But then again, hardly anybody went to university back then. So that's, again, that's going to be part of our challenge as we learn is to not uh, be anachronistic, like throw our values upon the previous society and say kind of stand in judgment of them we want to think critically of what's happening there and then use whatever we think critically of to apply to our current situation and that's why it's not really a history class we are going to be using the women to help us read the bible so we're it's really a 
Well, it's a Bible study, so. <laughs> okay. But anyways, how we get there is, is going to be. All right, and then, of course, women call men back to right relationship. Not, not a huge issue going on then, but also, too, you'll see this with uh, Argula von Grimbach. Great name. If anyone has a... I know Leah just had a boy, but if it, you know if any future moms have a girl, maybe we want to name her Argula. Yes, when you when you read the name, when you read the name, you're going to think Arugula. Just look at it closely, and you'll be like, no, it doesn't say Arugula. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, well, then also, too, though, just, you know, when it comes to biblical interpretation and credentials, Reformation women have different ways to interpret Scripture, guided and shaped by the personal experience in specific situations. That is something, again, that we are, always do, right? We're always thinking about how does this Bible passage apply to our lives? And so we are really going to be using them to help us answer that question. So the goal of the class is to learn from these women so that our faith is enlivened, our love for Scripture is strengthened, and our relationship with Christ grows closer. Hopefully that's our goal for every class. It's not, it's not a history class, so bring your Bibles. All right, so here's our lady. Woman. I don't, is it, uh, yeah, see it again. You don't like being called a lady? Tell me, I don't know. I feel like that's the same as saying a woman. But. All right, Katharina Regina von uh, Griffenberg. Griffenberg. Uh, there she is. Now, I picked someone from the late Reformation. This is at the very end of the Reformation. Uh, starting the Baroque era. But I picked her because I'm most familiar with her. That's it. There's no really rhyme or reason for the order that we will study, learn from these women. So just, uh, so you look at her dates, 1633 to 1694. So a year, a hundred years after the beginning of the Reformation. So her experience is not, I mean, this, this is uh, important for us too, because the uh, confessional lines, so the lands in which Lutheranism existed or Calvinism or Roman Catholicism, they're pretty well set. Some of the earlier writers, you know, all this is going on and there's only one church and there's not, you know, different bishops and that adds another level of complexity for us. But here everything is kind of set. Okay. There she is, though. Sweet hair, right? Yeah, actually, we, uh, uh, I think it was in the 1800s. I think her castle was where she grew up. It's uh, Zeisenegg Castle, Zeisenegg of Lower Austria. Uh, was you know being cleaned out, renovated, and they found all this old stuff, and they actually found two two paintings of her. This one and, and another one, which I don't know if we'll be able to see, but. Um, yeah, nobody knew what she looked like, but there you go. All right, she, before she was born, her mother had a difficult pregnancy, and her mother prayed to God that if she was born alive, well, she didn't know if it was a boy or girl, obviously, but her child was born alive, she would devote the child to God's service. Like, intentionally echoing Hannah with Samuel. Like, this is what she's going through. Um, so that's, that's what happened. So she grows up in this castle in Laura, Australia. Like I said, not from, not far from the, the borders. Now the 30 years war, this was a devastating war, but guess how long it was? 30 years. Okay. Uh, this was between kind of, it was kind of a quote unquote religious war, but once it was ended, the, the way of the king was the way of the land. So if the king was Lutheran, you'd have, everyone would be Lutheran in the land, and if it was Roman Catholic, it would be Roman Catholic. So at the end of there, that's when um, her land became part of the Habsburg dynasty. you got to think back to high school history class on that one, but okay. That was Roman Catholic. All right, so it was illegal to, to be Lutheran. Now, she could be Lutheran, her personal beliefs, but she couldn't practice them openly. So that means she, again, she would have to travel to the closest city, uh, kind of Lutheran city, was Bresburg, or modern-day Bratislava. 
very pretty city in, in Slovakia, to receive the Lord's Supper. So she would have to make these pilgrimages. And sometimes she would then go to the German city of Nuremberg. She actually eventually moved there later in life. So again, this is real helpful for us to understand is that as she thinks about her, as she meditates upon these scriptures and thinks about her faith, I mean, this is, she's pretty serious, okay? This isn't like an easy thing for her to do, to practice her faith and be passionate about it. So again, that's a very enlivening thing for me personally is to say, when your faith is uh, illegal to practice openly, what do you do? And what are the sacrifices you make? Okay. In 1651, she has a very interesting thing happen to her. During the Lord's Supper, receiving communion, she, she has this thing that she calls Deo Gloria Licht, the glory of God light. And, one of the, and now we're going to spend too much time on this, but uh, she will make up words. She makes up words a lot. And I think Germans can do that. It's like normal. Again, Chris is not here to give us exactly what that means. But actually, what's funny is that uh, in reading some of the translators' notes about her, they are like, once again, she you know, kind of smashes things together. And so anyways, what this was, though, is this is something that really happened to her. And it was, it was you know, kind of this uh, special experience for her. And now she only just, she doesn't make a huge deal about it. She just mentions this a lot. And it's basically God, you know, kind of speaking to her and, and uh, ministering to her in a special way. But it invigorated her faith, and it really was this moment where she's like, I'm making good on my, my mother's vow. I'm devoting my life to God. And part of that was to be celibate, which is kind of unusual again, based on what we just talked about. However, a peculiar thing happens. Her father's younger half-brother, Hans Rudolf, falls in love with her. So it's, it's her half-uncle. I know that's, yeah, so hang on. He, he, he basically, he, so her, his, her mother, her, her father dies. And back in those days, again, when the father dies, there's no income coming. A lot of the creditors wanted to take her castle away. But then Hans Rudolf steps in and takes care of everything. And then actually takes, tutors her. And from the age of 14, he basically, he's 25 years older than her. Yeah, falls in love with her. I know. It's quite scandalous. However, she puts him off for years. And, well, 17 years. One of the things is that this is so hard for him. This is why no one reads anything into this, is because it would be a lot easier for him to not do this. So people think there's this genuine desire to marry her. There's no, there's no financial benefit. Most marriages back then were more a civil contract between two parties where both parties would get a benefit out of it. Marriage for love is very uncommon at this time. I mean, they would grow to learn to love each other, I'm sure. But, yeah, so she marries her uncle. Very strange. But it's illegal to marry. I'm assuming that is for today. I didn't look into today's laws. I'm assuming it's illegal for uncles to marry their nieces. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It was back then. So they actually had to get special dispensation. and, And Hans actually went to jail for several months until Katharina wrote the emperor and the emperor basically said, okay, we can, we'll make this work. Again, just another kind of weird sign that, you know, people's lives are strange sometimes. All right, listed all the things that she's uh, tutored in. I mean, that sounds like a great education. One thing to make note of is medicine. This is kind of unusual. So she knows a lot about the body. And (laughs) she, the body is part of her meditations, especially as she thinks about 
the incarnation and Mary being pregnant. She'll have long meditations on what it was like for Mary to hold a child in her womb. Uh, Now again, this is 17th century, so she doesn't have as much modern science information as we do. However, she's very smart. Okay. Um, Now, through this education, she, I mean, her, her love for Lutheranism grows, and it's not only evident in the writings, but she actually took, I've read five, six, she made several trips to Vienna to actually convince the emperor to become Lutheran, which I think is fantastic. Isn't that crazy? So personal visits. So she doesn't do anything in writing. To, well, she mentions it, but like she goes, she, she's in, she, I mean, she really believes in the faith, which again is very enlivening for me. Again, she becomes part of like this whole kind of um, part of you know a literary culture, literary uh, society. Um, but all of her works really are devoted on this moment of like devoting herself to God. So she is mentioned in a lot of poetry anthologies, German poetry. But all of her poetry really is about God's creation. I mean, it's so they are they are sacred in a sense, or Christian in nature. But it's her, I have some copies of some of her, one meditation that you're gonna, I'm going to give out later, is that this is the bulk of her writing, are these meditations upon the passion and death of Christ, the incarnation, the life of Jesus, and then she was going to do a fourth one on the resurrection and ascension, but she died before that could happen. And she died on a Monday, Easter Monday, um, 1694, and she she was sick during Easter, so the last time she received the Lord's Supper was on Good Friday. Yeah, so that's a little introduction to her. Very educated, very very um, passionate about her Lutheran faith, and uh, I'm excited to kind of read the Bible with her with you. All right, so. So as we, as we take a look at these meditations, we should review just what meditations are. Okay, these are, again, these are not, you're not reading some kind of academic or doctrinal dissertation, which I always understand as being a little boring. This is, these writings are uh, just, uh, they're meditations. So everyone meditates. Whether you think it or not, you do meditate Sometimes it's about your grocery list, the things you have to do later today. But, I mean, this is something. So meditation is more than simply thinking about or reflecting on something, but involves our whole self, both body and soul. And if you don't think that, you will in a minute. So it has to do with your heart, the center of our being, with its passions and desires. We don't even need to try to meditate on what we desire. It just simply happens. Think about your own life and things you would really desire. Some are, you know, holy, desiring a close relationship with Jesus. And then others are, you know, more carnal. You know, I would like my electrical wires to not be all screwed up in my bedroom. I thought about that a lot on Monday. All right. All right, but the opposite is true, is that we also meditate just as easily on things we don't like, on what makes us anxious and our fears. So think about all the things you, you meditate on that makes you anxious and how that affects your body. Okay, so there you go. So if you don't think you meditate, you do. Just accept it. <laughs> just believe it. Okay. We meditate just as easily on, on the things we don't like and what causes us fear and anxiety. So in a sense, both our friends, those great good things, and our enemies teach us meditation. However, it is love that mainly trains us in meditation because that is the way we are made. God makes us this way. That love is the driving force in which we meditate on the things that give us life and salvation.
All right, now, basically, there's three kind of people in terms of meditation. Verbal people who love to listen, visual who like to see, and practical, doing. I am the third person. I, I'm thoroughly practical. Practical not meaning, like, useful, but, like, I have to do something. So I, I think I've maybe shared this before. I say my prayers when I run. I run. I jog. And that is my, my best time to meditate. It's very hard. I, I tried to when I was in college because as I was told, you know, 20, we're going to, we have a 24-hour prayer thing going on. Marcus, you going to sign up? Yeah, I'll sign up for 3 to 4 in the afternoon. Okay, great. Or whatever. Whatever time it is. So I went to my college dorm, pulled up my Bible, sitting there, praying, reading the Bible, praying. You know, 10 minutes in, I'm like, I'm lost. Distracted. Not really, not really meditating. Well, I mean, I'm meditating on things that probably are not pertinent to why I signed up for this 24-hour prayer thing. Um, little did I realize I should have, I should have just, I should have gone for a run or for a walk, an hour walk. Uh, so you learn that about yourself when you do it. Anyways, I, I list those three because we're gonna, I'm gonna try to, we're gonna try to do this together. We're gonna try to meditate. We're gonna kind of be like Katharina Regina von Griffenberg, and that's how we're gonna study the Bible. We're gonna study the Bible mainly through meditating. Now, by the way, meditating. I should have mentioned this earlier. Meditating is somewhat of a scary word for some people because we think of like yoga or Eastern religions. They do not have, you know, they don't have the market on the word meditation, okay? Meditation is a general term that I just described above that. Okay, so let's not, let's not get too worried about the definition. Meditation is really, oh, uh, Another reason why I handed these out. We have a prayer meditation in the back of our hymnal Bible. Didn't say that because you know the people who made this were nervous about that word too. So if you go to page one thousand, took forty-five, I think one thousand forty-five. I mean, you don't. I'm going to read it, so you don't have to really. So if you're a verbal person, you just have to listen. It says here, for use of the scriptures. I do this at Pastor Chats. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read... Oh, I'm sorry, 1048. I said 1045. You have, a, you have a verbal, you have a visual, and a practical in this prayer. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Inwardly digest. So when we study the scriptures, we are not sticking them in our brain. Right? Right? Not only our brain, hopefully your brain, but not just your brain. even goes down to your, your tummy and your heart. So that is what we're going to try to do. Okay, great. Um, so the important thing, though, is not how we meditate. It's on what we meditate. The object determines what happens to us, okay? And that's, that's really important. This is a big thing in Lutheranism and uh, kind of the Reformation of piety during the Reformation. The object grounds and empowers the meditation. So we must never enter meditation alone or try to empty ourselves. Okay, that's, that's a, that is the Eastern religions. You know, the pinnacle of Buddhism is what? Is anyone like a 90s grunge band fan? Thank you, Kathy. Just looking for Holly there. Holly Gleason. Nirvana. Although, are you, are you, is it just your husband? Okay. Shouldn't project. All right. Um, yeah, Nirvana. Emptiness. Well, no, well, that's, we're not going to do that. We're not emptying ourselves. Okay, we want to we go into meditation together with someone who knows what's happening. <laughs> Who's going to lead us? Jesus, of course. All right, so 
Uh, so Christian meditation focuses on Christ and his word. And if we want to be more speci- most specific, Christian meditation focuses on the crucified Christ. Christ crucified. And that is the unique Lutheran thing during this time. We'll, we'll actually, I'll mention this next week, is, um, well, if you just take, just flip it over the, uh, to the last page of your little packet there, there's a little, like, image and that is how uh, Greifenberg starts her meditations. She, she uses an image and a poem and then prose. And this is, it's really great. But I don't know if you can tell, but this is, this is the picture of meditation for Greifenberg. If you take a look at it, obviously you see Jesus Christ crucified. Obviously in cloud, on a hill of some sort. And in, in this person's hand is a sponge. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get rid of everything besides Christ crucified. Anyway, so, so she, that's it. That's this image. Is you want it, you want it. So when we focus, when we meditate, because on Christ crucified, heaven and earth come together. The love of God is shown most blatantly. And the forgiveness and forgiveness. So our restoration of life and salvation. Boom. The way life is supposed to be for us. At the feet of a loving God. Sounds good. I hope. I hope it sounds good to you too. Uh, one of the interesting texts is Luke 10, 38 through 42. And that's the Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are both meditating. Okay. Martha is the activist or the practical and Mary's the contemplative. All right? So it's not really about what they're doing. Okay? I know that gets made a big deal about. Like, Martha is, she shouldn't be doing what she should be doing. No. What's Martha's problem? Well, yeah, hang on. Let me let backtrack. What is, what is, what is Martha doing? Preparing a meal, right? For who? Yeah, right. Okay. Generally, a very nice thing to do, especially when you invite someone to your house. Okay, so it can't be that. Because think of the opposite. If she, if she doesn't make it, who's going to? Nobody. And it's going to be a bummer of a time, okay? So that's, that's not the issue. The issue is what? What does she start doing? Yeah, freaking out. Why isn't Mary like me? But they're both serving. They're both, they're both spending their time with Jesus in their own unique way. Okay? So she's losing focus on Christ. That's it. But, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things to this Bible text, but just as it pertains to meditation, this is really kind of a thing for us, is that, you know, poor Martha, the practical one, you know, she gets distracted rather than seeing what she's doing in terms of her relationship with Christ. Okay, great. So the three presuppositions is, as you meditate, the mysterious presence of Christ. Christ, as you meditate, Christ is with you. Matthew 28, 20. Then also, to the life-giving power of God's word, John 6, well, so Matthew 28, 20. I will be with you always. Sorry. Move so quickly. So Jesus gives the the you know tells the disciples to go and make disciples. Tells the twelve apostles, well eleven at this time, unfortunately, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. And he says, "Lo, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So Jesus is with you. <laughs> and again, that's important because Greffenberg is she's. She believes that in spades. And then the life-giving power of God's word, John 6, 63. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The apostle Peter responds to Jesus when Jesus says, are you going to go away too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, well, I think it's 663. It's 660-something or another. I kind of did that by memory. Uh, hopefully that's right. 
It's around there. Sixty-eight. Sixty-three is it? It's not the spirit. It is the spirit that gives life. It's the whole section, but I was primarily thinking of six sixty-eight. But six sixty-three works well too. See, there you go. The Lord's taking care of me. So how about you put just a hyphen and then sixty-eight? Sixty-three to sixty-eight. <laughs> All right, the freedom. All right, then, and then the last presupposition is the fact is that. There's a freedom based on the forgiveness of sins. Those who are free from sin delight in Christ and his word because they don't, because they, meaning um, Christ and his word, don't accuse her, but reveal God's love and life for her. So that's Psalm 1 that we read in chapel today, or prayed it, or read it, yeah, listened to in chapel. All right, so that, that's important. So these are the three presuppositions of Christian meditation, is that Christ is with you, that his word is going to give you life, and that... Um, there is no, there's nothing between you two. Complete freedom. All right, because of this, though, meditation is never dissociated with, from Holy Scripture, liturgy, sacraments, and prayer. So you say, wait, Pastor, I thought you'd go for a run. Okay, great. When I enter into my run, I have a Scripture in my mind or prayer um, or actually... Like, for instance, I was thinking about, I'll tell you, yesterday I went for a run. Now, actually, I don't, I don't know if it's in this section that I give to you. But she's got a little, little paragraph on Christ's love. This is what I meditated on yesterday. So I ran. ran. All right, anyways, um, she, she's got a really interesting thing about Christ's love. Um, you know, it's higher than the mountains, you know, and it's longer than eternity. And But then she says it's hotter than hell. I love that phrase. Because we think about the Holy Spirit, right, and the fire of God's love. I, I never thought about that. Nothing is hotter than God's love. So I thought about that for 39 minutes. Hopefully no longer than 40, based on my run. Hopefully I ran five miles. Hopefully it wasn't longer than that. But, yeah, so anyway, so uh, Holy Scripture, prayer, another, like, so I, you know, this, this whole notion of, like, learning from another Christian, which I would associate with in the liturgy, and then, of course, sacraments. Thinking about baptism, the Lord's Supper, forgiveness of sins, yeah. That's all, because then it's from those things, then, that things blossom. Okay. Skip ahead. You can read about the purpose of meditation. Parable of the sower is great. And that goes back to that prayer I mentioned. Because in Luke, the parable of the sower is, is like what meditation is, right? Our heart is the seabed for God's word and it will grow, but it takes patience. The Gospel of Luke and the Parable of the Sower specifically mentions patience. And in that prayer on the back of the Bible, 1048, mentions patience. So it's really, it's really good. It's a little, I mean, yeah, I love that prayer. I use it all the time. Okay, well, I already mentioned about the picture. But her meditations, which I'm going to, Actually, let's hand these out right now. Can anybody help me hand these out to people? Kathy, what did you say? Saints, saints preserve us. Okay. Anyways, okay, okay. So I'm handing out this packet. Hope we should have enough for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I I didn't know how to use the copier quite correctly, and I I did one of these like you're going to read it like this. Okay. Now, there should be, every word that you need to read is available, okay? So it does look like some of it's chopped off, but it's not, okay? Um, so the, the basic structure of her meditation, so she, she, she was encouraged by Samuel von Birkin, some guy, some famous poet from that time, to publish these meditations. And... Uh, so when they publish it, she's like, okay, how, how is this going to be helpful for people? And so she has this image. So there's actually a, a, 
a great thing about if you're, if you're interested in visual meditation or just Lutheran art in general, there's a great book by uh, Bridget Heal. She's a professor in England, St. Andrews, I believe. And uh, she, you should pick it up. I mean, if you love art and you love Lutheranism, you should read this book. Super cool. It's, I mean, it's an academic book. It's not like a leisurely book. Lots of pictures, though. So, anyways, she makes special note about this, but anyway, about uh, Griffinberg's use of imagery. But she will start meditations with an image. Sometimes it's labeled copper engraving. I, I don't know why it's like that. Maybe I don't know. Maybe there was a copper engraving with them. But uh, and then after that, she'll have explanation of the. It says right there an explanation. So usually, but that's a poem. And the footnotes will explain all that stuff. So you're kind of like, why is it written like that? Well, it's actually a poem, and it rhymes in German, not in English. The, the translator does try to keep some, as much of that, you know, the rhythm and all that stuff. But anyways, you, you, can, you can sort of see that every image has a, a, a motto and an inscription. Um, I would just look down at the bottom rather than looking. It's in German, and sometimes it's hard to read. So they just simply translate it for you there. All right. Now, she, so the thing, anyway, interesting thing about this is that she wants the emblem to be clear and obscure, comprehensible and incomprehensible at the same time. Now, how does that work? Okay. Well, it's, it's clear insofar as, you know, there's a person, there's a, some sort of painting canvas, there's an angel it's, it's outside at some courtyard or something. I mean, that, that's the clear, that's the comprehensible this one is probably the most, or this is the least incomprehensible. Uh, but at the same time, you have to spend a little time with the image to figure out what it is. And you might have to go back to the image after you read her meditation. So it's not like, oh, hey, I get it. I'm going to read, and I'm going to be done with it. It has you come back, which is the same habit you should be doing with the scriptures. You read it. You come back to it. Martin Luther would say meditation is like a cow chewing its cud. For those who might not know what that means, cows chew food, send it to one of their stomachs, and then bring it back up and chew it again, and then go back down again. Okay? All right. So this is, this is I mean, it's, I think it's a genius to use this image to say, I get it, but I don't get it. Oh, yeah, so, okay, so if you, uh, the, the other image is just a few more pages up on, I don't know, I, unfortunately I did knock off most of the page numbers, so, it looks like there's some guy, like some giant person walking maybe on water, with sea creatures on the bottom, again, it's comprehensible, but the title, or the motto is Out of Love and Design, like, what does that mean? So you got to spend a little time with it. Come back to it. It's not easy. Okay. I just wanted to show you that. We're going to do all this stuff next week. So I want you to take this home and read it. By the way, if you have a pen with you, you need to re- write down Matthew 26, 1 through 13. Sorry. Should have done that right away. Matthew 26, 1 through 13. That is the scripture she's meditating on. Well, she actually hasn't meditated on all those verses, but the translator... Oh, did I tell you how many pages these are? I didn't. 4,000 pages total. So we're not going to read all 4,000, okay? So the translator will actually says, I didn't translate everything because it's too long, but I hope to give you a picture of what she was trying to do. Okay, so... Yeah, Matthew 26, 1 through 13. And I think it ends kind of like at verse 10. But you should get the whole section. Um, okay, great. So just write that down. So this week, I want you to be reading that Bible passage like a cow chewing its cud more than once. Hopefully every day. But maybe not even reading it every day, but at least 
Yeah, meditating on it. So you might read it one time. You'd be like, oh, hey, this one thing out of it, I want to I wanna spend some time with. Now, you can you read this meditation by her also as a way of helping and maybe helping your own meditations, okay? Like I did yesterday. Thinking about how God's love is hotter than hell. That it will be a margin comment, by the way. Well, I'm submitting it to Pastor Bruzak. Um, if you see it, everybody will be like, what is this? What in the world? Be like, don't worry about it. God's love, man. Nothing's, right? Nothing can be hotter than God's love. Okay, is there a question? Yeah, Barb. It sounds like, when I saw that, it sounds like something you would want to do during Yeah, oh, good, yeah. Yep, yeah. These, um, so these were written for every time, but yeah, so there's, the church here, again, is built for this. By the way, uh, the reason why we're reading it in this order, even though I mentioned the Incarnation, is that's how she wrote them. So she wrote about the crucified Christ first, and then she went back to Christmas. So, okay, that's... But yeah, so Advent and Lent are two times, preparatory times in the church year, where we should be spending more time meditating. Yeah, so... Okay, great. Well, then after that, the, there's an introductory poem... Uh, it does offer some clarification on the emblem, but I, I just treat it more like a prayer. So, again, it rhymes in German, and they, I think she does provide the actual German words. So if you know German, maybe you want to do that rather than English. And then, okay, then I just mentioned the scripture, Matthew 26, 1 through 13. She mainly, and, and she will actually put the verse before her meditation, and the reason why I talk about that is that because I think some of we might, you know, you might have read like a commentary, a Bible commentary that does the same. You'll have a verse and then commentary on it. Again, this is not commentary. This is, this is a meditation. So it is, it's a different. But um, what she will do, so this is, um, this, this is the story of the woman washing, putting nard on Jesus' feet. And, you know, anointing his feet. But... More than one gospel has that story. So she will sometimes, the, I think the main, the main one is from Matthew, but she will pull in information from the other gospels. Okay. Just so you're reading, you're like, wait, that's not in Matthew. You know, because you've read Matthew 26, 1 through 13, and then all she starts talking about something else, you're like, does she have a different Bible? No, she just pulled information from the other gospel texts. Kathy. Uh, well, I just, this is very helpful because... Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever read Superman comic books, but he, like, lives, there's the bizarre world. Yeah, right. The bizarre world, and that's, like, the opposite right. of the world. And uh, I really, uh, just really seem, I'm just in a bizarre world when it comes to meditation. Yeah, right. I'm completely meditating all the time. Well, that's right. That's good. In bizarre world. So that means I'm, like, worrying. Yes. Worrying, I'm constantly chewing and swallowing and bringing it back up again. Well, Kathy, you're 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 already you're already on next week's uh, lesson, so this is good. I mean, yeah. Verbal, visual, practical. So, like, verbal, I'm, like, constantly listening to myself and... Other people, like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? You know, and then visual, I'm like, imaging, like, okay, this is, this is going to happen. And then that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then that'll happen. And then the practical thing is, I go to the internet. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, it's like, oh, man. I hope I can flip it. Yeah, okay, great. So, Kathy, okay, this is why I mentioned, so this woman's life, she has as many reasons to worry about stuff as you do. She didn't have the internet. There you go. She's got her tutor. So what you have, maybe, is she, I guess she had it easier than you guys. You know. She had it way easier than you. I mean, aspirin and modern medicine, they're, they're pains, aren't they? Yeah, no. Trust me. She did not have it easier than us. Because uh, she had a whole other set of worries that we don't have to worry about. You know, when you start coughing, you think you got TB. Your first thought isn't TB. You get a fever, your first thought isn't, oh boy, we're going to die. 
right? You think about, you know, getting some medicine, okay? So, yeah, the whole point, though, is, uh, Kathy, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. This is, I am so excited to read her with you or meditate on God's Word with her with you guys because of that very reason. Um, there's, there's so much anxiety and worry in the world. It's almost like we believe God is not present. I mean, God has made great promises to us. Now, again, that doesn't erase the craziness of the world. I mean, she still had, she was still going to have her livelihood taken away. And it was. She, her, her, she had to give up her castle. She had to move. I mean, she, her, she lost her house. She lost her lands. She lost everything. Um, her mother died. Her sister died. Her husband died. So, you know, it wasn't easy. So as you read these, I want you to think about that. Because these are the people that we need to listen to. Because they're just like us. Did she ever say you thought her mother? A little bit. Again, there's 4,000 pages. Only, there was only a couple hundred that have been translated. So she says a little bit about her mother's example. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was for all intents and purposes, and that was a really hard thing for her when she lost her sister. Yeah. Yeah, Erin. Probably most of us are right there with you in the bizarre world. Yeah. But I think, like, that, I thought that was helpful what you put in there um, under the purpose of meditation. Yeah. Because um, so many times you feel like you want to hear something and you're like, okay, I got it. I'm done and fixed and changed. But, like, change in your mind takes a little Yes. And that was encouraging, just, like, knowing that this stuff takes time. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so many things that we can say to help our expectations. One of them, just I would read the parable of the sower, uh, Luke, the, the, the parable uh, in Luke. You know, because, I mean, I have, I, I have a problem with growing vegetables. I like to pick them way too early. <laughs> well, yes, I, but yeah, of course, you know, there's a great fight between agents of Satan called rabbits. Especially those little pesky ones. Those little baby ones. Yeah, well, we used to have a fox in the neighborhood. I loved it. It's like, do not call animal control. Okay, anyways. So, yeah, but the whole point, though, read that, Aaron, is that, I mean, that helps us. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wait. These things take time. Long, I mean, months and months. Then think about it in terms of just, you know, patience in, in the Bible and how God is patient. And think about the circumstances to which he needs to be patient. And then you're thinking decades. So, however, just like the plant that grows, there's change happening. Every day, whether you observe it or not. And it's, you're never going to observe it in the moment. It's only afterwards that you observe it. And like, and like sometimes you wake up one morning and you're like, I think it's time to harvest this. And you do bear the fruits of patience and meditation. However, God tells us we will not bear the fullness of of our salvation until death and the resurrection. So there are things in our life we will have to bear. We'll just have to bear it. However, as it says in Hebrews, who is uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Who, well, let's read it. I probably shouldn't make it up. Because one of my favorite words in the entire world is joy. I love the word joy, but this word, this these Bible verses always help me understand the joy. Uh, well, twelve one and two, but we're just going to read two, two, twelve two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is always my image of joy 
is Jesus looking at the cross and saying, I, my, my love is hotter than hell, and it's going to burn. So that is the patience. Then, that, then that's, that defines our patience, is the joy set before us is our cross that we bear, knowing that after we die, we'll be seated at the right hand of God. So it gives us hope. But we need people like Katharina to help us. So we're over time, so we have to stop. Let's pray. Oh, uh, I would read the footnotes afterwards because uh, some of them are just like technical, like, hey, this, is, uh, this poetry was in, you know, ABAB rhyming scheme, and some of it's, you know, not worth it. But other stuff is, is uh, very helpful. And then every now and then, the translator, uh, well, I don't know if we'll read that meditation, but I think it's uh, in the ninth meditation. She makes reference to... Well, Greffenberg makes reference to Numbers 21 and the bronze and servant, but yet um, the translator makes a footnote on some other some other story. I'm like, nah, that's not what that's not what she's talking about. So, for the most part, they're just technical. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you next week.